Welcome to Flower Hour. A podcast completely dedicated to baking. I'm Amanda in Atlanta. And I'm Jeremiah in Sacramento. Hi, Jeremiah. Hi, Amanda. How are you? I'm great. I'm so excited to talk to you today. You know, I'm always excited to talk to you, but I feel like we have a lot of great stuff to cover. Um, You've been away and I've been here plugging along in my little baking world, just missing you. Oh, I miss you too. Oh, so much. I'm so glad we're back together. And how are things going in that baking world of yours? So good. So I've been doing um, some creative baking, some stuff creative for my, you know, personal self, and then also some cake orders. And then this week, I'm super excited because on Friday, uh, the Atlanta Fire Department is hosting with their firefighters, their own kind of Great British style bake off competition. What? And lucky me, they asked me if I would be a judge for that. So I am like gearing up for Friday. I just can't wait to see what the firefighters bring to the table. So that's what I'm looking forward to. That's going to be so much fun. Yeah, super excited. Um, I can't imagine it being anything but delicious and just a great time because firefighters have kind of a reputation for being pretty solid cooks and bakers. So it should be a great experience, but, but like the big, the big, the big, butt here, <laughs> which is really funny, um, is you've been away in Portugal. You've been doing research for your cookbook. I've been following along and drooling on my phone through your Instagram <laughs> stories. And I just, I like, I want to hear everything about it. Like, I wish you could just, however long you were there, I wish you could spend that exact amount of time <laughs> telling me about it. But we can't do that. So, like, what? Tell me. Tell me everything. Wow. So, what an incredible experience. It was beyond my expectations. It was definitely one of these leaps of faith where you're like, I'm going to go do research in a foreign country that, yes, I have some connections to, and I speak the language a bit, and I've researched it a bit, and I've been there, you know, a few times. But still, to, to achieve the kind of interaction with the people and get really an in-depth understanding of the culture and the desserts and the baking tradition in a way that I wanted to, I didn't know if I was going to be able to achieve that um, just by, you know, stepping foot off the plane, walking up to a pastry shop and being like, hi, can I have all your secrets? Or can I have, you know, can you tell me what this means to you? You know, they're like, no, go away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds so approachable just to think about like, oh, Jeremiah, it's easy for me just to say this phrase. Jeremiah's doing cookbook research. Yeah, uh-huh. But then to think about you physically, like, yeah, hi, you know, and going through the process, like that conversation you're brave, man. You're super brave and hats off to you for doing it. Thank you. So what I did before I left is I literally drafted an email of what I was looking to achieve. And I sent it to every Portuguese person that I had some remote contact with that was in the food world or even not like friends of friends, friend, you know, family, whatever. And uh, my sort of, no, definitely my top choice Um, this guy named Nelson, who is Portuguese, and he has an award-winning blog dedicated to the food and food travel of Portugal. Um, He wrote back and said, I can do all of this for you. And he made contacts with the people who do the best version of that traditional dish. And so he set up this whole Jeremiah's baking dessert pork porch. Jeremiah's Portuguese dessert baking tour. And it was beyond my wildest dreams. Um, Absolutely incredible, like just goosebumps every day and um, so much inspiration. But with that being said, it was incredibly challenging and incredibly um, scary at times. And so while I am so proud of myself for going through the experience, um, it was hard. It was hard and challenging. But I, what I want to say is that, you know, I'm, so I'm in my, my um, mid-30s and 
I think as we get older, it's really important to keep challenging ourselves to do things like this. I never even thought about it till I was on this trip and to be like, wow, this was a lot to take on. And I did it by myself. And there were days where I was like, I just want to go home, even though I was in my world of like, this is what I love. This is what I want to be doing. I'm here. I'm in it. But I was like, I just want to be safe in my home, reading my cookbooks, you know, and, and I'm so happy that I pushed myself to do it. And so everyone should pick some sort of venture when they can to challenge themselves in a way. And um, on the other side, you can be like, wow, I, I, I'm, I can do things, you know, <laughs> does that make sense? Totally. I, I mean, I can definitely identify, I feel like nine times out of 10, if I do something that I'm wanting to do, but it's really scary, I'm completely exhilarated and, and fulfilled afterwards. So I definitely understand that idea of like doing it, but it's, it's easy to get into maybe like a rut even and just go, yeah, you know, like you, it's not like you're not baking and there's so many very comfortable ways of baking yeah. to push yourself to this, this um, like different level and kind of fulfilling a dream dream dreams are terrifying. Like to, to try you. to make That's... a dream come true is so scary. Um, yeah. I, I think that the things that mean the most to you are really scary because if it, if it doesn't mean much to you, it's like, yeah. I mean, like if somebody said, Hey, do you want to go? Well, lately my husband's been asking me if I want to try golfing. Well, I haven't invested my heart in golfing. So it's like, sure. (laughs) What the hell? Why not? You know, but it's not really that scary, but something that is so precious like this for you. I'm sure it's extremely scary because you start playing out like, what if it doesn't work out? Or what if, what if they're not hospitable to you? Or what if you get to, or or what if you try to make the pastry and you just look like a complete fool? Cause maybe you're not (laughs) going to do a good job, but um, yeah, I think, I think what you're saying is completely relatable. And like I said, I'm just so proud of you for doing it. I think it's awesome. Oh yeah. And that you hit the nail on the head, the, once I was in these moments and meeting these people, the the hospitality and the generosity was absolutely astounding. Um, and the inspiration now that I that I've brought back with me is something I could never have gained here at home. And in this day and age, I really feel like I could write this book just by researching online, watching YouTube videos, reading other people's cookbooks about Portuguese food. And yes, I could create a book of some sort of quality, right? And read a lot of history and try to, you know, make my own sort of conjectures about it. Being there and having these connections, this these moments of touching the food, talking to the people, being in this in the land where it was born, you can't replicate that at home. Um, so many of Portugal's sweets come from the 12th, 13th, 14th century when nuns were creating things in convents. So I'd be in a pastry shop that was been making, has been making um, a suite that's maybe been made since the 1500s. And they're like, do you want to go see the convent now where the nuns created it? And I'm like, uh, yeah. And then you go and you like your skin just starts to in Portuguese, they call it like your skin flowers, like instead of goosebumps. And so it's like, I am like, Oh, I'm in this, these places where these people thought of these things. And I'd be like, well, how do they come up with this? And they're like, we don't know. And it's these, you're just like, Whoa, blown away by the creativity of people from centuries ago. And the fact that people are still honoring these traditions and promoting them. And then all of a sudden I have this small piece of it where I'm, you know, I get to observe it, connect with them, and then honor them in my book. And and truly, so I was talking to a lot of people, and you know, I, I it became very common that I'd explain my project. And I was like, you know, I want to make a tribute to my family who came from Portugal, and then there the people that came before that, and then to the country themselves. And then one of my hosts said, you know, really because food connects us all, you know, no matter how crazy our phones get, right? No, how, no matter how crazy technology becomes, 
the nothing will ever replace the act of sitting down with someone at a meal and sharing these things, which we've been doing since the beginning of a time. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, no one can take that away from our humanity. Um, and that is so special and ancient and primal. And it's, and he's like, you're never going to sit down with someone you don't like and cook poorly for them, right? <laughs> you're always going to do your best. You're always going to want to be welcoming. And he's like, you're really trip making a tribute towards humankind. Oh, wow. And I'm like, um, yeah, yeah. And I just, I saw my place in this puzzle. And then also I'm not, I'm, I wasn't born in Portugal. I'm, I'm the great grandson of the country, if you will. And only half of me is I'm only half Portuguese. Um, but I was talking to another, another expert and she said, you know, when the Portuguese left, their country like for instance they went to brazil and so many of the desserts in portugal con contain almonds well they didn't have almonds in brazil so they had to switch it out for cashews or for peanuts and she's like you're gonna do the same thing you're gonna take these recipes and i mean i'm not gonna maybe switch out whole ingredients but i'm going to gently do things for what's here in the united states and that's and that's also how how through history food history things change things evolve and um, it was brilliant. And then another example of that, which I loved, was um, I was learning how in these, you know, hundreds of years ago, um, when a woman would get married, her mom would teach her to make some sort of, of sweet. And I thought, oh, that's really nice. She's going to learn something that she can make for her family that her family will enjoy. No, that wasn't it at all. It was so that she could sell something to support her family. Oh, wow. It was an actual means of survival. And so I learned that's why you can have the same dish being made in different areas, but with different names, because, you know, she, maybe she would leave with her family, her, her new husband, and they'd move somewhere else. And, you know, things would evolve, but it would be the same dish. But I love that the mom was thinking, what can I give to my daughter to support her, to help support the family? Um, so all these little insights into the history and the world of Portuguese desserts that I just would never have gotten without sitting with these people and, and talking to them. Yeah, I can see it'll be a very different book than, like you said, yeah. it's not that you would write a bad book if you just Googled it, but <laughs> what I feel like too, you cannot substitute kind of like you talked about sitting down and connecting with people and a phone can't do that. You also can't substitute these conversations that come to you because sometimes you might find information that you wouldn't have Google searched, but because you're having the conversation, yeah. that person's brain pulls out something specific for you that they want to share with you that, that maybe you would have never found out just because you didn't type it in. You didn't know to search it. So Right. It seems like you got a lot of cool information and, and unique things that now it's your story to tell in, in more than just searched yeah. it and, and re reverberated what's already out there, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, those questions, yeah, you think of, and like, for instance, there's a lot of things that I'd sort of made my own conjectures about that were totally false. And it was <laughs> wonderful to be like set straight, like, because I thought, well, this must be because of this. And no. Um, but it's interesting, too, I would love to ask, well, what defines Portuguese baking or desserts in other countries? You know, what makes it stand out? So, you know, I know what it is for me, but to hear someone that's that is Portuguese answer. That question was fascinating. And one answer that I loved is that um, in the beginning, if you will, um, all of Europe, Western Europe were doing this. They were doing the same things. They were making the same things. They had roughly the same ingredients and it was all kind of the same. It's just that Portugal decided to at one point, well, we're just going to do more of this in greater quantities and greater whatever, while another country went a different direction. And instead of it feeling like, well, we're this and we're the best at this, it was more like, no, we're all the same. We just, you know, we decided like we blossomed in a different color than, you know, it was very cool, very like we're all family and then we'll all just slightly have our own spin on things. Um, I loved that. I loved that. Like a but, great way to coexist. It's not us versus them. It's just, we're all doing yeah. our own thing and we're, you know, near each other, but focusing on different things. Maybe it sounds. Exactly. 
And it's fun to see how history influences certain moments that definitely make a turn, make the dessert traditions turn in a certain way. And I guess you would say, too, the biggest defining factor are the convent suites, especially in the continent. So what the whole story is, is that in the convents, um, the the um, nuns and the priests would use egg whites to starch their clothing. So all their habits. What? Yeah, <laughs> I know, right? Oh, cool. Okay. And like the priest collars and also they would starch like royal banquets, tablecloths with all the egg whites. So they had all of these egg yolks left over and you, you know, you can't waste things in, you know, you just can't waste things. Um, and then Portugal was one of the first countries that really started to grow sugar in their colonies. And so all of a sudden they had this huge influx of sugar where sugar was available, but only really for the elite who could afford it. But now it was readily available and the convents had huge access to it. So the nuns were like just coming up with all all these desserts based on egg yolks and sugar. And I learned a lot of these nuns lived in, they call it, um, I don't know how to translate it exactly, but it's, they enclosure they weren't allowed to go outside of the convent okay Um, so they'd be protected they'd be protected from people that could potentially abuse them does that make sense it was for their security as well like just just protecting them completely yeah so you can imagine you know they're in this sort of building that they never get to leave and they must have to be creative in ways to pass the day. And so in one of my the most special days I had is in a place called Tentugal and it's where they stretch dough paper thin. And, you know, I've made strudel dough. I've made, um, haven't made filo, but what's yeah. the other one? I don't know. I'm blanking, but, um, I, I, you know, I, so I've stretched a bit of dough over a table, right? But no, these people stretch, it over a whole room on the floor. And I was like, how did they figure this out? And she said, we don't know. We don't know. Maybe what, and this is like 1500s. Maybe one day the flour and the water, they just had the right elasticity and the, the nun stretched a little. And she's like, oh, that's nice. That stretched. I'll stretch some more. And something <laughs> evolved, you know, that is unbelievably amazing. So when you, I'll, I'm going to make a video of the process, but they stretch this dough beyond paper, paper, tissue paper thin. And to see it done in such a huge way, it's incredibly per, um, impressive. And then they, they um, sort of wave the dough to get some air into it. It helps relax the, the gluten and stretch it as well in the center. And it starts to look like water, like ripples of water. And you just have this moment of being like, wow, the connection of nature, the connection of inspiration of these moments that are beyond us. And food is can be beyond just combining elements in a bowl and baking it. It's it's like, for me, it's like alchemy, right? Like turn, taking these disparate ingredients and creating something golden. Um, and so, yeah, that was a really special experience. And to, to hear the genesis of it and um, be there where it began is pretty remarkable i like that it's so mysterious the start of it too like right because it's not just like their mom did it and because it's been going for so long you know that part has in some way been lost and at first when you were saying sometimes they didn't know i thought well that's kind of sad but now the more you talk about it i'm like no it's it almost makes it more mysterious and magical and like using the word alchemy like it's like oh it's so just um I don't know, like magical. I think that's probably the best way, but just very, very special. I saw in your stories them stretching Mm -hmm. that dough and it was completely mesmerizing. Um, And I mean, truly when you say like over a room, like it's it's like this large blank space, it looks like. And then this full room, it made me think about as a kid holding the parachute, like in class, like everybody would stand around and wave it. And the way that the dough was kind of rippling, I mean- Oh, spectacular. I would love to see it in person. I can't wait to see the video that you put together. Um, okay. Another bake that I have to know about. Yeah. There was one and I'm sorry, I cannot remember the name, but it was 
egg yolks and I think sugar and it was put into a machine and you said that it was mixing for some kind of very long time. Like I mm-hmm. want to say it was more than an hour or like two. Yeah. Hours. Tell, <laughs> tell me about this. And then it was baked in this really special looking clay yeah. maybe vessel. So yeah. tell me about this one. I want to know. I'm glad you brought it up because I, everyone sort of agreed that the most ancient dessert in Portugal is this type of cake and it's called pão de law which uh, I don't really even know what that translates to. It's bread of something, but it's not bread. It's cake. <laughs> okay. Say it again slowly for me, just because I, yeah. I want to learn. So pão. Pão. And you have pão. And you have to kind of get the, it's a nasal sound, like a ow. Okay. Pão. Okay. <laughs> de law. Law, like L-A-W, the way we would say yeah. law. Okay. Yeah. It's confusing because it's L-O, but it's a... Uh, we, there's lots of vowel sounds in Portuguese, more than we have in English. So, yeah. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remember this. <laughs> so, okay. It's just all, there's so many kinds of this sponge cake throughout the country, but it's always just eggs, sugar, and flour. And then the eggs can be either whole or varying ratios of yolks to whole eggs, etc. So this place I went to has been doing it since the 1700s in a very specific style um, and they've been, they were doing it for the royal family back then. And they, in the olden days, the ladies did it by hand. So can you imagine? So you get a huge ribbony sponge by hand. So they would, I mean, it's like in there. So I didn't get to see that. There are some videos on YouTube if you want to see. But they have these cool machines that basically whip the eggs and sugar for, yes, over an hour. And... um it was incredible to see the, the machinery that was built whenever they figured out they could do that um, is still there today and still being used. And what was cool is it's been motorized now, but in case the motors break, they can stick a, um, a, like a handle and then they, they like a uh, winding up a, an old fashioned car. They like can physically continue. turn it. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> so cool. So two ladies doing it. And once the sugar and the, the eggs have been going for an hour, they, they sift in some flour, let it go just a tiny bit more, and then they scoop it into these paper-lined clay vessels. And it's going into what would have been a wood-burning oven, but now they have this giant heat gun that just heats the oven from this gun. Wow. It's very beautiful. And I guess it's just yeah, easier, more efficient than getting a – because it's a huge oven, huge it would have been hard to take a long time to do that with wood. Um, and so they um, put the dough with using their hands into the, into the, the clay vessels. Yeah, and I the saw clay, they just it's like kind of like cupped their hands and, yeah. and pull, pulled it out. Like when you say scoop, of course I imagine like an ice cream scoop, but I saw in your story, yeah. like they're just take their hand and like bloop, pull out the dough. <laughs> and then they cover it with, um, a, a lid basically like a dome also out of out of clay or terracotta and then that's baked and that that specific recipe is baked till it's fully set so it's a fully baked sponge and the texture is not unlike cotton candy and you're meant to eat it like with your hands and so they brought us a warm one into this receiving room and we had some port wine and you just start you know kind of munching at it and all of a sudden it just starts to disappear because it's so lovely and um you know, you know, we, we talked to Steph a bit about, you know, being in a pastry shop and what that's like. And so I noticed, you know, too, kind of what she said, you just, pastry cooks are looking for different cues. They have different priorities. And I think as home bakers do, especially if you know, like you and I are very, you know, we have a lot of attention to detail, which I think is great, but it's interesting to see how they interact with their bakes. And so much was by color mm-hmm. um, of the bake. And so much was um, also the texture and the smell. They were using these the senses in a, in a very, very um, way. The only someone who's been doing something for 20, 30, 40 years can do. Um, and that, that, that was the other big thing that I saw. I mean, I think it's because I'm you know, a musician is that there is a music to the way these people work, people that have been doing things for decades. And I just loved that, like actual music, like you know, if you're punching out circles of dough, if you're um, spreading butter, or if you're doing that, there is uh, this gorgeous rhythm and um, 
syncopation that's just was like wow that's really cool really cool and then you think okay i can do it i can do it and they're going to give you your your chance and i i can feel the rhythm i can see the motions and i'd start and be like oh god this is hard i can't do it i can't do it <laughs> maybe in a, a couple decades later it'll just be supernatural yeah because <laughs> it's i feel like too it's it's almost trickery when you see someone who's been doing something for 20 30 40 50 years and and it looks so simple, like even something like spreading butter and, and yeah. And you're like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. And then you realize your like your arms are not moving in the way that, that theirs do. It's just, um, they make it look too easy. So, okay. Yeah. Well, I, I know we have to get to our guest here, but tell me one more thing. Tell me at least something else. I just want to know more, more, more. So, one place I visited makes a type of cheesecake and this cheesecakes are called Kejavish and they're made all over the country and in the islands. And they can also be something that's just made in that shape and not necessarily contain cheese, but, um, and the shape is just kind of a small kind of single serving tart or little tiny cheesecake, but not cheesecake in the American sense at all. But, um, Anyway, so I did go to a place that does use cheese, and they've been also making this since the, God knows, 17, 1600s, something amazing, and the nuns created it. And a lot of the Kejavish use a tin, right, where they'll put a base down of dough and then a filling. Okay. Like a tart, like any very similar to what we would do. Um, but this place was special because they would actually form the base by freehand, by freehand. So there was no tins. So they took a circle of dough, and then they had these very specific m- movements once they put the filling in the center to build up the sides of the dough around the filling. Um, and it had to have seven pleats. And seven was a number I came across many times in Portugal. And it's, I believe, connected to, they were trying to tell me, in I think something a bit religious and also to constellate a constellation of some sort. That I have to do more research on. But seven was very important. Um and the filling was made of a fresh cheese that was the milk was came from cows, goats, and sheep. So it had a really complex flavor. Interesting. And that's mixed with some sugar, some egg yolks, of course, um, a little bit of flour and a little butter. And it's and not too much sugar. So once it's baked, you still get that really cheesy flavor, but you know, slightly sweet. I guess if you've had like a goat cheese cheesecake or a cheesecake based on a more stronger cheese, it's that kind of experience. Um, and then the it's it's adorable how it has this, its own little pastry case and it's it's very crispy and then the filling is um, nice and smooth and um, they stack them in a special way to keep the the pastry crisp. And then the ladies in the olden days would stack them on their heads and then go sell them in trains on trains on in train stations. And even they'd go to the beaches and sell them. Um, so I just, one of the ladies actually had done that. She was old enough to have done that and to hang out with her. Oh, one more thing is the ladies are adorable, hilarious. And the whole time they're making them, they're just talking about sex the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) Because why not? That's, that's, that topic translates in every country. <laughs> <laughs> they are teaching me and it just the innuendos as I was learning were off the charts. I was even in Portuguese, I was blushing. <laughs> oh, I love it. So fun. So, so fun. I watched you make these in the stories and that kind of dessert stresses me out because you feel like it's going to go in the oven and unfold and just yeah. go everywhere. And so I was watching and it's like, they stayed in this like perfect, almost like puck shape, just so perfect and round. And, oh, it sounds delicious. I like the idea of the stronger cheese. So I'm just basically making a list of all the things you need to make for me. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm so excited about our, our guest today. She is amazing. And some, a whole different area um, than we we usually talk about. Right. So we're going to talk about food styling. Yeah, so our guest today is Tammy Hardiman, and she's a food stylist. Um, You can find her on Instagram. She's got really gorgeous pictures on there, and um, she's styled lots and lots of cookbooks. And I'm just super excited to pick her brain because we all pretend to be food stylists if we're taking pictures (laughs) of our food on Instagram. And I think it'll be great to get some info from her um, 
just get those tips and tricks of the trade. Also, she's written a cookbook. So I feel like we're having a theme. Our, a lot of our guests have written cookbooks um, and that's a really unique experience as well. So let's get Tammy and uh, get her to dish the dirt on food styling. Tammy, welcome to Flower Hour. How are you? I am so good. Thanks for having me. Hi, Tammy. I'm so excited to get to chat with you um, ever since we met. So I don't know if uh, I told you this, Jeremiah, but I met Tammy. We were both judges at a Porches and Pies, um, <laughs> like a pie baking competition thing. So that's where I met Tammy. And then since then, I talked to her a good bit on Instagram, like talk in air quotes. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's always fun when we have a chance to like talk to the people that we message with. So Thanks so much for popping on with us today. It's going to be super fun. Thanks for asking me to be along. And um, yeah, it is actually nice to chat with you and uh, get to know you, Jeremiah, as well. Yay. Well, tell us how did it all begin? How did you first get into food styling? (laughs) Um, Completely by accident, actually. Um, I uh, I was a fashion writer first. And then sort of by necessity started styling my own fashion photo shoots. Um, and then went freelance, left the, the publication that I was at and was a freelance fashion stylist for a few years and was on a photo shoot. Well, first of all, the first shoot that I ever saw a food stylist on is like, the all of the things you never want together in a photo shoot there was children there were there was a dog and <laughs> ice cream cones <laughs> <laughs> and so my job was at, on that shoot was i was the fashion stylist and all i had to do was get 50 of the same t-shirt cuz they were doing this photo where the dog was going to jump up on the kid and lick this three scoop ice cream cone <laughs> and so they just had to keep changing the shirt. So, you know, it's a, like a really easy day for me. And I'm just standing around watching this food stylist. Like what? I didn't even know that this was a thing. And I mean, she was just being run completely ragged. I felt so bad for her that day, but she was taking her scoops and she was like putting them in dry ice and then putting them in a cone that had tissue paper in the bottom. And then she was taking a dowel, like a skewer and putting it all the way through all of the scoops And so that way it would be really stable when the dog jumped on the kid and then it was supposed to like quote splash on his shirt or whatever. Um, And so I just was completely like enamored with this as much as I was just watching her be tortured all day. And then uh, another (laughs) photographer, maybe like three months later asked, you know, called me and asked if I could come assist on a food shoot and said, you know, we've hired this food stylist. I'm not sure that she's going to have the skill level that we want. And I know that you know how to cook. So can you come and just do this favor for me and help out just like, you know, cook, cooking stuff for her to style in this photo shoot. And she in fact did not know what she was doing and they let her go. <laughs> and I took over the photo shoot and that was how I became a food stylist. I was there that day and I was just like, this is the thing that I was meant to do. Like it was just sort of serendipitously brought to me on this photo shoot. And that was pretty much it. After that, I went back and started assisting and learning all the tricks of the trade from there. I think that's such a cool way for you to come up, like kind of come upon it. It's like you were just going through the universe and food stylings going through the universe and then you just collided in this magical way. Um, Yeah. And, you know, I, I grew up in a family where, you know, food was always sort of around. My mother was a great cook. We always cooked together. And I, even, you know, on my own as a single, you know, young person cooked. And so it really was this sort of collision of the two things that I really loved, which was food and making pictures. So um, it really was just total serendipity that I was there that day. I think that's super cool. I have a question now about the ice cream because I see these pictures on (laughs) Instagram all the time and they'll have like, I don't know, like 20 scoops, like just a crazy amount of scoops. Do you think there's a dowel in there like most of the time? Is that how they do it? I think so. I think think it has to be. I mean, unless the scoops are just, or they're not real scoops now that I think about it. Um, But if it is a real scoop, I think so. Or unless they just freeze the whole thing together with like dry ice or something. 
Oh yeah. Maybe that could be it too. Probably. I'm guessing there's a dowel in there though. Like now yeah. that I'm thinking about it, cause we've all, I mean, you've seen them, right? Jeremiah, like I've seen these pictures yeah. and they're like towering tall and you're just going even for five seconds, how do you get it to stay there? But I bet there's some trickery going on, like good trickery for imagery. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like the wooden skewers that you would buy at the grocery store for like barbecue or kebabs or stuff like that, that you would just kind of stick right through the middle. And it sort of stabilizes the whole thing. And it'll buy you an extra, you know, 45 seconds to a minute, probably before everything starts melting. Wow, what can you use besides ice cream to make it look like what what else could they have scooped? Well, a lot of people, and you know, there are so many truth in advertising rules. So like on commercial shoots, people don't really do this that often, especially if the main product is ice cream. Mm -hmm. There's so much legal stuff involved nowadays that you really do have to sort of scoop the product. But if the scoop is just like, I need a scoop of vanilla ice cream to put on something. A lot of times people will use Crisco Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, mixed with powdered sugar. Or baking soda. I mean, everybody has their own recipe. Some people use like um, canned or with a plastic container um, cake frosting. Mm-hmm. And then we'll mix baking soda in it and or powdered sugar and just sort of like work it until you get the, the right texture. And it will, when you scoop it, have those like cracks, like the mm-hmm. ridges, you know, that look like I- the ice cream scoop. It will do that when you get it to the right texture. And it will sit for forever. <laughs> How is there a school for all this? How did you learn all these things? <laughs> um, and I just, I learned by assisting people. Yeah. And I also just learned by doing hands-on. I mean, I, uh, there, there was no school for this for me. I'm sure now that things are more transparent with digital photography and the internet and food styling is like a thing now, you know, I've been doing this for 12 years and it wasn't as much of a thing. It was really kind of behind the scenes, but now that we have Instagram and, you know, digital photography and food photography, I think people are much more transparent about it. So I'm sure that there are classes in culinary schools and stuff like that. And there, and, you know, and folks that are doing great internet, you know, food photography that are internet presence. There are lots of workshops and retreats and those kinds of things that people can go to to learn some of those kinds of tricks. But really, I think the best way is just being hands on and trial and error. I think like I think 60 percent of my job is anticipating what's going to (laughs) happen. That makes sense. Yeah, I feel like I'm a professional troubleshooter. Like what are all the things that are going to go wrong or how can I get in front of everything that's about to happen? so that everything still, you know, stays looking good. That sounds fun. <laughs> uh, it is. It's a, it's my dream job. I can't imagine doing anything else, but I mean, there are some, some things are easier than others. <laughs> um, ice cream is really tough. Yeah. Ice cream's really tough. I feel like there, it's like a ticking time bomb. Like you could get it and go, wow, it looks really perfect. And then you can't be like, well, I'm going to go take a quick bathroom break reapply my lipstick and then take a nice picture of this you come back and you're like well it did look great so I felt like you said it sounds fun and I'm sitting here going that sounds really stressful (laughs) (laughs) I think that I think that I'm used to operating at sort of a low level low grade stress level kind of all the time at work you know until until I know that everything is great I think that I I really do spend a lot of time like, okay, we need this in case this doesn't work. I I always feel like I have contingency plans for everything. Um, But imagine like trying to do this 20 or 30 years ago when there really wasn't digital photography. I mean, that's why food looks as good as it does now, because it doesn't have to sit around waiting for, you know, in the old days, you would like take a Polaroid and, you know, get your exposure right then you might have to relight something and move stuff around. And I mean, that's why plastic turkeys existed for so long in advertisements. And that's why people used fake ice cream because it just needed to sit for so long. And so now that there's digital photography, you can redo things over and over again, relatively cheaply and quickly. And it makes the, I mean, it and food photography has gotten so good because of that. Yeah, that's really interesting to think about the arc and how it's changed because of the equipment. And then um, you mentioned Instagram too. I'm always curious 
just myself. I mean, you know, I'm always taking pictures of my cakes and other bakes <laughs> and putting them on there. Yeah. And I'm like, I hope that the food stylist of the world that may ever happen upon my page aren't cringing too badly. And I'm always kind of curious, <laughs> like, what is it like as a food stylist, as a user of Instagram, when you're clicking through the pictures, is it painful or do you wish you could help people? Or are you happy? <laughs> like what, what is it like from your eyes? I mean, I think that, I mean, the magic of Instagram is that you can kind of curate the things that you want to see. I mean, you know, if you hit a hashtag and go through things, there's a lot of dismal food photography out there. I mean, there, there's a lot of bad food photography, but I, I don't know. I think I'm still happy that people are documenting their food. I think it's really interesting to see food from different parts of the world. So I, I'm not that judgmental about it, I guess. Um, and plus, you know, the people that I follow have a certain aesthetic about, you know, the photos that I like to see and everybody's is different. I, I don't love to see the super dark photos anymore. You know, like there it's like dark surface, super rustic and like bordering on like rusty and scary. And it's so dark that you can't see the food. Like I, those aren't the images that I like to see. I, I, I guess it may be an occupational hazard, but I really want to see well lit, pretty food. And I mean, and the subject, I, I mean, I like seeing food of all, of all types. Um, I don't really, you know, I don't think that I've ever, well, that's not true. <laughs> I, <laughs> I think I'm way more critical of commercial photography than I am of stuff on Instagram, because I do know that there's so many varying levels of ability, but I mean, I am like the fake ice cube police on television, like on TV commercials and in ads they all, for the most part, look terrible. And I'm always just incensed that I can tell that it's not a real ice cube. <laughs> My husband just rolls his eyes at me. I'm like, oh, that, that ice cube in the De Serrano ad, that's not even really, that's not even real. <laughs> this is cracking me up because I didn't even realize like there were real and fake ones. And like, even when you mentioned truth and advertising, like this is all a new phrase to me that like I haven't ever heard of these thoughts. And so like ice or anything, I'm just going, I'm going to, I'm going to try to like, see if I can spot one now. <laughs> now you won't be able to unsee it. Oh, that's the thing. <laughs> there's like a, a, there's an iced tea ad or something too, that has a really tall, like skinny, um, I guess it's like a Collins glass and it has these glass ice cubes and they're so clunky and square and they just don't fit in the glass and then they pour it in there and the tea just goes like in the glass and I'm just like uh, uh, uh. so much better um but yeah there's this one like I think it's a De Serrano ad and it's in a rocks glass and it's got one ice cube in it and then they do and the pour is really pretty like it splashes around in the glass but I'm just like uh, that ice cube isn't even <laughs> yeah i'm definitely gonna try to spot this now for sure and, they, and they, they're really expensive like the really good looking glass ice cubes are like seven like between 70 and probably 150 bucks each what yeah <laughs> i mean you can get pretty decent fake ice on amazon if you googled fake ice cubes you could just order some and they could be at your house tomorrow but um like the really nice ones for commercials and stuff there's studios in new york that just make like glass ice cubes unbelievable my mind <laughs> blown <laughs> is it is it just that ice is so hard to work with because it melts or like i'm going i don't i would just try to find some really pretty real ice maybe so that i wouldn't have to and do I, all that yeah and i always prefer to do real ice because i don't think even the best fake ice looks like real i mean there's nothing that looks like it there's a frostiness and like a believability in the condensation that you just don't get from a fake ice cube, obviously. But a lot of places, I mean, and like if you go to a restaurant chain, maybe like a fast casual or like a sit down sort of casual chain restaurant and you look at if their menu has pictures in it, I, nine times out of 10, you'll see fake ice cubes in it. Interesting. Well, I can't wait to look. I now. know. Now you're going to be like. Where's it's the where's Waldo of like food styling stuff now. It's going to be hashtag fake. Yeah. Ice everywhere. 
That's really funny. <laughs> um, okay, so on the Instagram topic, we got a bunch of questions for you from Twitter and from Instagram. Oh, no. And uh, <laughs> one person on Instagram, it, her screen name is Oh My Doodle, and she said that she has really <laughs> low light in her kitchen, and it's just like terrible. And she wanted to know what tips you would have for somebody who has low light in their kitchen. Oh, goodness. So this is where I feel like I'm a dream crusher a little bit in that I feel like, and because I have taught, helped teach lots of workshops and styling classes and stuff, and we get these questions all the time, is that there really is not like a magic fix for not having light. You could use a, a program like Lightroom or one of the more advanced like editing things on your phone to help post-production, but really, I mean, nothing is going to ever replace having window light or like good quality, not yet, like the non-yellow, non-orange light. Um, and it's just like, I don't know. I, I kind of, I, I feel like I'm a stickler a little bit because I, I'm just like, so go find the light. Yeah, I know that people want this the quick solution to like, I don't have time. I'm trying to take a photo of my food because, of, you know, it's right before dinner and I'm trying to feed my kids. And, and I totally understand that. But like, you know, your your photos are only going to show like the effort that you put into it. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, as you say it, I'm and you're like, well, kids and dinner. And I'm like, well, I've definitely burned some dinners and I've certainly made my kids wait while I hold my poster <laughs> boards outside. To post my cake. So yeah, I, I totally am with you. I feel like, I mean, I am no pro. I am complete amateur, but with my phone on my hands and knees out on my patio with my poster boards, cause, cause I don't have great light in the kitchen. And I feel like that's, the only way for you to kind of see some of those details, especially if it's like a drippy, drippy ganache cake or something like that. Like right. you can pretty much be sure that I'm outside <laughs> laying on my tummy, like trying to crouch up to this cake to get just the right thing while it sits on the patio. So, um, right. And I mean, I, I wish there was a magic solution because I'd use it too. I mean, I don't necessarily always, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very fortunate that I have great light in my house um, and I have really good covered patios kind of all the way around. So if I need to quickly like dip out and take a picture of something I do, but I mean, I'm, I'm still out there, you know, hauling surfaces around or moving things outside so I can take a picture of it just kind of like everybody else do. No, it's really helpful. Sometimes we all have to face the facts and the truth of what will be best. Yeah. And I'd rather you keep it real with us than, you know, say, Oh, you know, turn your body this way and stand on one foot. And then I do that and it still doesn't work. Like I'd rather you just, you know, say, well, it's not always easy. Kind of thing. So, cause that's, that's well, yeah, the reality. you know, you can, it is the reality. And I mean, you can use things like a piece of whiteboard, you know, just get that white foam core board that like maybe your kids would use for their science fair project boards or whatever, get those white boards and keep it around. And if you need to try to bounce some light in, you can use that to, you know, kind of fill in some light without having to buy an expensive reflector or anything like that. But as far as like the source and the quality of the light that you have, you're kind of at the mercy of what you have, unless you want to make the effort to go find, to go find it. Makes sense. Any tips on using iPhones or phones for photography? Because I think that's what most people are using these days um, in the amateur realm. Um, I, and everything that I post on Instagram, unless I credit the photo is taken with my phone these days. Awesome. Um, I use VSCO, which is a, a photography program for the iPhone. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not an Android user, so I'm not sure if it, they have it for, for the Android or not. Um, but I, it, it's basically sort of a one-stop shop where you can shoot and edit uh, your images, there are presets if you want to use them. I don't really use filters or presets that often. I'll edit a little bit like um, contrast or sharpen an image and boost up the contrast a little bit. Uh, but you can do all of those things in the app. And I believe that Lightroom is the same way these days. And so I really think it's just downloading things and trying it out and seeing what you like best. Um, but I mean, photography on the phone is pretty amazing. and. For me, and I mean, I can use 
uh, of, you know, I can use a professional type quote, professional type camera. Um, but a lot of times that's really hard and I don't have time for that. You know, like I don't, I don't have time these days for that either. So I, I mean, I just made something for lunch that I'm going to post this afternoon. And I just, I have a surface that I'm about to pack in my car to go on a photo shoot. And I threw it on there on my kitchen table by the window and took a picture of it. And I did every, all of my editing, resizing, cropping, everything with VSEO. I'm curious because I do most of my editing in the Instagram app, but then I've heard a lot of people Mm -hmm. mention this, um, the app, the VSEO. What, like... Is it, is it a better app for editing than doing it in Instagram? Is that why it's popular? Because every time I see it, I go, well, I just edit in Instagram and I just kind of keep it moving. But then I've heard it so many times. I'm like, I should probably pay attention. Um, and I think it's just a matter of like what you're comfortable with or what you've been using. I started using VSEO sort of from the beginning when I got my iPhone. And so I'm really comfortable with it. And it really does have lots of... Um, tools for editing there's a lot you can really do some like nuanced editing with vseo you can crop you can straighten I mean, you can do straighten you can do small moves and, and i don't really do anything in the instagram app besides just post it so i haven't really used it as an editing tool i don't know how to like say if it compares or not but um vseo you really can do everything just within that, within the app. I mean, I think it's worth downloading and trying for sure. Yeah. I like this kind of thing. So I'll, I'll at least download it and play around and see if, you know, there's some things that I haven't been able to do before. Um, okay. So another question that we have for you. Um, so at really into this and they're on Twitter and Instagram, <laughs> they wanted to know how has your styling evolved? Oh, um, Hmm. Okay, so one of the things that I'm a real big believer in is personal enrichment and doing workshops myself, like attending them. And I constantly am am on the hunt for things like personal enrichment or classes that I can take or workshops or retreats to go to to kind of disconnect from the styling that I do for my quick, you know, for my jobs and explore in a place where is, you know, there's not any judgment, there's no clients, there's nobody there with any expectations. And um, I think that's been really key in just sort of making me think less about what I'm doing, (laughs) if that makes sense. It's like, all of the pre work that I do for a photo shoot or a recipe, I mean, there are spreadsheets and shopping lists and like almost, you know, day by day charts and lists of things that are going to happen. You know, I'm about I'm about to go on a cookbook shoot and there's 101 pages of recipes and corresponding spreadsheet grocery lists and everything. And all of that stuff is done so that when I get to my shoot, I really can just focus on making things pretty and not worry so much about all of the moving parts that are underneath it. And so I've really done these, um, these classes and these workshops so that I can just go and have a place to explore and be free to do whatever. I, a lot of the stuff I post on Instagram is really just stuff that I do as personal projects or that I do for myself, you know, cooking lunch or cooking something at home. I constantly work on my craft and I think that's really important. And I think that if you don't do photography or if you don't do styling for anything, but your work, I think then it becomes, it feels like work. And I just really love now that I feel like I have the freedom to see a recipe and just sort of go with my instinct and not second guess myself as much. And I know that that sounds a little bit like, I don't know, like a self-help, <laughs> self-help food styling guide or whatever. <laughs> but um, I, I will sort of going back to the point of my talking about these workshops and stuff. I think the most pivotal moment in my food styling career was I went to a workshop by a photography pair, a husband and wife uh, duo named Gentleman Hires. And They've been in the photography business for a long time and they are people that I 
admire their work tremendously. And I had the opportunity to go to a workshop that they did in Washington. And to see the confidence in their own taste and their abilities and to just let themselves go and to make art and to make things pretty was like the, uh, the biggest shift for me uh, in my work. That was about three and a half years ago. And I cannot, I cannot recommend it enough to anyone that's interested in food photography or in styling. I was actually the only stylist there. Everybody else was a photographer. Um, but it was, it was life-changing. And at that point, I think I really just, um, I just let go of some of the things that I worried about all the time. And I think immediately my styling was quote better but I guess by that, I mean to say that it just like made me happier. I love that. I like the idea of like um, giving yourself that space to play and then kind of becoming more free and it actually making your work better and like maybe just making you happier either way. But um, yeah, it sounds very special. Yeah, it was, um, it was pretty remarkable and um, you can, you can follow them on Instagram too. I can send you all the links and you can share them if you want. Um, Their work is amazing. And, but, but just finding somebody who's, whose work that you admire or um, are interested in, or maybe it's the complete opposite of what you do. um, I, I kind of always push myself. I've always been this person, even when I was in fashion styling, I always did personal projects. And I think that's really important too. Um, to just work outside of your work and explore things. And I, I can't, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've shot something and I just was like, eh, that didn't work. Okay, great. But it wasn't on set. It wasn't for a client and there was no pressure. And I learned, you know, and I, it was a learning experience for me. I can really identify with that yeah. as doing um, cakes for a business. And that's kind of new for me only the last year, but I love, love, love doing them, but I definitely find if I don't have some time to do some of my own baking, it becomes a little monotonous. So I have to like throw in those just (laughs) play cakes or play bakes where I just test out ideas. And and like you said, I don't have to necessarily worry that it's not going to work out because I don't feel like it's the time to fully play when you're baking for someone who's paying you. So I very much identify with that. So you bring up such great points about learning to follow your instincts and connecting to these moments that really align yourself with what feels right and that can bring creativity. Um, But for people who are still finding that, how styled is too styled or is that possible? Kind of what's your take on on that? Oh, goodness. Um, (laughs) I really like food that feels lived in. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think my, I think that's my personal style and my personal type of food styling is that food that's, that's pretty, but is not too stiff. That feels like, um, it's lived in a moment a little bit. Mm. Um, I don't respond personally. I don't connect to things that are perfect. Um, you know, like I always want to see, the piece of cheesecake or a piece of pie or something that's got a fork pulled out of it or a bite taken out or something that's got, you know, shattery crust or something like that, because I feel like it then connects it to a moment and makes it feel lived in. Um, And I think those small details really take your food styling from a very stiff sort of advertising type food styling to -hmm. something a little more editorial and more lifestyle. I love that. I lo- I'm always kind of looking at things from like kind of just from uh, further back, like, okay, is, you know, the colors and the blocking and just sort of as a, as a piece of like visual art versus a moment in time that's foods being enjoyed, which is definitely what, why I love food. So thank you. That's, that's really going to sit with me. Well, yeah. And I mean, I think that food, I think the best food photographs, even if it's just a shot of a, you know, what you would call a hero bowl or dish or something, Mm -hmm. you know, take, you know, get that full shot of it being of it perfect, and then put a spoon in it or put your chopsticks in it or put a fork in it and twirl it around. And then, you know, work through a couple photos where, you know, you've 
kind of lived in it and, you know, some of it's taken out. So you can see maybe the bottom of the plate or bowl or whatever. And so I, I encourage people to try to work through versions of things like get the thing that, you know, is like the safe photo. Got it. Mm -hmm. And then just spend an extra 10 or 15 minutes. Most of the time when we do cook, when I, I would do work on a lot of cookbooks, we'll do the safety shot, you know, the one we know that they're going to like. And then we were, you know, spend another 10 or 15 minutes or 20 minutes working through versions. We'll put a napkin in, we'll unfold the napkin and set it to the side. You know, all of these things are sort of these like small subliminal clues and cues to the fact that, you know, this is like living in a moment and that there's like real human interaction with this food. Yeah. I like I that this. a lot. I feel like to me, <laughs> that's what makes the food more craveable. Like if it just looks like a museum piece, I'm like, Oh, that's nice. It's pretty. But when I see, like you talk about twirling a noodle or a bite out of something, I'm like, mm. now I really just like, I want to climb in there and, and eat it. So, which I, I think is, you know, probably what we're after. So, um, I do have one more question from listeners. Okay. It's from Fraulein Steve on Twitter. And he says, I don't have an eye for making things look beautiful. My bakes are always delicious, thankfully, but they don't have the panache I see elsewhere. Where do you start with trying to develop your style in baking? Are there books, TV programs, or is this just an inborn quality that I will never have? That last question makes me feel so sad. <laughs> I know. No, fine, Steve. You can do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I mean, as far as baking specific. I mean, I mean, you two can probably make some suggestions as far as like things to reach to for inspiration. But I have to say that I am, and I always have been ever since, well, the reason I became a fashion stylist is because I used to save my money uh, to buy Italian Vogue. <laughs> when I was like 11 and 12 years old, my mom would take me to the bookstore and I would buy Italian Vogue. And I've always been a voracious devourer of imagery. And I've always loved magazines. I have probably 400 cookbooks at any given time. Um, I'm constantly seeing what's out there, what's changing, um, what food and photography in different markets looks like. Um, and I think that when you start to, you absorb these images and you really do like take in as much visual imagery that you can, you start to, you know, I, I think that's where you start to see what you connect to. Um, and I know that this sounds, it, it's hard because like not everybody has the time to just like, you know, flip through a magazine or like th go through 10 cookbooks in a stack, which is what I do when I'm not working. Um, but I think that you start to see the things that connect to you and the, the stuff that you're drawn to. And then I think it goes back to really just allowing yourself to experiment and either succeed or fail. And I know, and, and this is the answer that nobody ever wants because I feel like we've, and in workshops and classes that I've done, everyone wants a quick fix answer. And unfortunately, I don't think there is one. I think that as you, you know, sort of quote, curate your own style, those all of those things, your ability and your personal style and your comfort level with your work or your baking or cooking comes from time and experience. Yeah, it's just a process, probably. Um, I know for me, what one thing I would have to add here is I feel like for me, when I went to school for a short time for art and the critique process was really cool because before I would look at things and like them or not, and it made me bring a lot of things that were just kind of subconscious of the reasons that I didn't like them or did like them kind of into my forefront of thought. And so I've tried to approach baking that way in a lot of ways, like I'll be scrolling through Instagram and there's something that I really love and I'll try to take a pause and I'm like, well, why do I love it? Because otherwise... I don't really know why I like it. I just yeah. go, oh, that's really nice. And then I start to take it apart. I'm like, do I like the color palette? Do I like the techniques? And if it's the technique, then I'll sit and try to practice that technique. And maybe I might do something 20 times and scrape it off. Like this is not a cake for a customer. So if customers are listening, <laughs> I'm not doing this to you. But you know, if I'm just practicing, it might be on a sheet, sheet pan or something and just pipe, 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 scrape it all back into the bag, pipe, pipe, pipe some more. Um, 
And so Mm -hmm. I'm totally with you. I feel like it is kind of that practice, practice, practice. And then sometimes you still have like royal flops and it is what it is. (laughs) So that's my thought about that. Yeah. And I think, you know, I still collect hard copies of magazines and books and things. And, and, you know, from a magazine, I will completely take a page out. I have a board in my office that I pin things to. And to your point, like sometimes it's like, oh, I really love this color. or Oh, I love that this top of this sandwich bread wasn't on, like they styled it this way. And I don't, you know, I, I always keep things for specific reasons. And I mean, and I guess that's what Pinterest is these days. And I, and I think that having like, I have probably, thir- you know, 30 secret print Pinterest boards of different things where I've like collected an image and I'm like, okay, well, I really liked the, the way this plate or this was on a board with some paper on it versus a thing. Um, and having this sort of, you know, library or of, of inspiration. That's so helpful. I love how the arts all overlap. So I'm a musician before I was ever a baker. And you cannot rush becoming a musician. It doesn't, it's impossible um, for many reasons. But one thing a musician does is you're always listening to other people. You're trying to imitate them. And then that's how you find your own voice is by trying on other people's voices for a moment. And um, all of a sudden your voice emerges. But it just totally aligns with what you're saying that you have to be part of the process, fully engaged, looking at other people, other masters, and then experimenting and seeing what resonates. So and thank people, you so much. And well, and people feel weird about saying like, I, I've taken this inspiration image or I liked this person's whatever, or I liked the way they piped this on this cake or whatever. But I mean, we've done, you know, I've, I've done several, like I said, you know, workshops and classes and stuff. And I can, I can show you how I can show five people how to do something and then give five people all of the same ingredients and the same tools and all five people will do it differently. And just because you're inspired by one particular source, I don't think like, you know, to your point, like you're just being, being mm-hmm. inspirational and copying something or totally. not the same thing. All right. So um, I know we like really hit you hard about food styling. So I was like, let's finish <laughs> off with a lighthearted question because we are all about the baking and often baking is sweet. I was curious, what dessert do you like to eat on your birthday? Oh man. Oh, this is hard. <laughs> no, it's not. Um, it's easy and fun, Tammy. <laughs> <laughs> this is actually maybe the hardest question you've asked me. <laughs> I love that. Um, gosh, I love mint chocolate chip ice cream. So any sort of like, I think my dream would be an ice cream, mint ice cream cake. Oh, that sounds so good. That would be my dream birthday cake. I love ice cream. I love cake. I love cookie, like an ice cream sandwich. Oh, a mint mm. chocolate chip ice cream sandwich cake. Mm. Can I have that? Yes. yes. It's your birthday. You can have whatever you want. <laughs> Sweet. That's what I want. That's totally what I want. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. It was incredibly helpful oh, and inspiring. Thanks. Thank you so much, Cheryl. This yeah, super I really fun. appreciate it. I learned a lot from you and I'm sure I'll keep learning lots and stealing inspirational ideas from you on Instagram as well. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> like, likewise. Thank you, Tammy. Talk to you soon. Be sure to subscribe to Flower Hour on iTunes or SoundCloud. And if you're enjoying your time with us, leave us a review. We'd appreciate it.